Ready to add a big dose of positivity and empowered perspective to your day? You've come to the right place. Welcome to She Said, She Said podcast. I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. Here, we tackle everything from imposter syndrome and confidence building to the best advice on how to lead yourself through life pivots, including the ones that knock you flat. For the past three years, I've talked to hundreds of experts about their stories. Here, you'll find their actionable advice and lessons, as well as my own tools that you can put to use in your own life. Stick around. I think you'll find this investment in you well worth it. Hi, friend. Thanks so much for joining us today. We have such a special show. When the folks at the American Ballet Theater sent me a note about Kara Meadoff Barnett, I knew she was somebody that we had to have on the podcast. She is the executive director of the American Ballet Theater, and she is leading that organization through a massive, massive pivot uh, that requires a complete shift in not only how they think about revenue, but also to some degree in the culture of the organization for 80 years, and this and the American Ballet Theater is one of the oldest ballet companies in the country, its core legacy has been a commitment to live in-person performance, which of course in COVID is not possible. Now the ABT canceled its 2020 season just as really all live uh, venues have done or found some way to alter it. And they've also just canceled the 2021 season of live in-person performances as well. So Kara, who took this job as the executive director in 2016, found herself having to keep the company going and keep the dancers going. Remember, these are highly trained athletes with very short career lifespans, typically, and the stress and emotional anxiety around the idea of not working and not fulfilling that incredible professional potential that you've worked for your entire life is devastating. We're all dealing with COVID to one degree or another. And I think as a result, you'll find, even if you're not working in entertainment, I think you'll find a great deal of wisdom in Kara's perspective Her optimism, her focus on growth and on innovation is truly inspiring. Once you've had a chance to listen, I'd love to know what you thought. Here's my conversation with Kara Meadoff Barnett. Kara, welcome to She Said, She Said. Thank you so much for having me, Laura. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, I am so delighted to have you. It's hard for me to imagine the tremendous leadership challenge that you have been going through over the course of the last almost year. You've been at the ABT since 2016, uh, and of course, last year marked the company's 80th anniversary, which I'm sure meant you had lots of things planned to celebrate that. Uh, Obviously, that didn't happen. Um, For any leader who is forced to make a big decision where, in your case, you had to cease operations, at least temporarily, talk about how you you reached that conclusion. Because obviously, in hindsight, you had to do that. But in the moment, 
what so what what happened? What led up to that? What was going on? Well, in March of 2020, we had just premiered an epic new full-length ballet in Southern California, something we had been working on for years. And we had this glorious opening night and standing ovations and critical acclaim. And I got back on the plane to come back to New York and there were a few people wearing masks. And even when we were out there, we, we definitely gave a few talks to the dancers about you know, hygiene and hand washing and, and we're watching this closely, but it was clear by the time we landed back in New York uh, that, that the world was changing and changing quickly. And we were only in the studios together for a few days before we had to walk in and announce that uh, no one should come to rehearsal tomorrow. Uh, and uh, I think this was around March 14th. Yeah. And so it all happened so quickly and everyone, it was like the highest of highs to the lowest of lows with no sense of where the bottom was, right? There was just this, this sense of loss and uncertainty. And, uh, and it was very disorienting for everyone. Um, my, my kids, I have three young children and they were uh, about to go on spring break. And I remember the school saying, we don't know when we'll see you next, yeah. right? It was just that type of thing. We're saying goodbye, but without... Uh, planned cadence without a calendar. And I know that we can all identify with that feeling. And uh, and then as a leader of an organization, everyone's looking to you for the answer, right? They, <laughs> no one has the answer. So they say, so who's going to tell me? Well, it's obviously going to be the people, the same people who tell me when it's a snow day or not. Right. Right. The weather is going to decide what the weather is going to do. That's outside our control. But the leadership is going to tell me whether I'm supposed to come to work or not. <laughs> right. They're going to tell me whether do we have a late start or is it is it snowing so hard that maybe we should just stay home. Right. And so uh, as the person who calls the snow days, there was a real uh, question about how do we forge ahead? Do we just push pause? Do we hibernate and wait for this thing, whatever this pandemic is going to evolve into, do we wait for it to be over? Or given the information we have at any given time, what can we do? What can we do to continue serving our mission? Mm -hmm. And at ABT, this is a, a nonprofit organization. It's a mission-driven organization. And for 80 years, the mission has been pretty consistent. And so if we can all rally around that mission, and it's different, by the way, than a for-profit company where you're rallying around creating shareholder value. We're rallying around a mission. Right. And what can we do each and every day to advance that mission? And so the actions will be different. The strategies may be different, but the mission is, is a compelling and galvanizing force and so from, from those earliest days in March, we were able to set out certain filters for decision-making and those filters and priorities have remained constant, even though the context has shifted, mm -hmm. even though the rules of the game change, depending on what the governor announces or depending on what the case count is in any given part of the country, the, the, the tactics may change, but the shared goals and shared purpose uh, have remained constant. Yeah. There are a number of things that are very unique about your role. Most people would not have any sense of what the day-to-day -day operations of the executive director of the American Ballet Theater entail. And while I imagine it's very, very different, there were a couple of things that really struck me about what you were likely dealing with. Your staff, 
to, to use a perhaps not the best term, but your 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 dancers are elite athletes with really short career lifespans. Talk about the emotional piece of your job and how sort of how you dealt with that because you're dealing with the strategic piece, but you're also dealing with a pretty significant emotional piece, I imagine. Maybe talk about that. Absolutely. And, and, and our, our workforce, if you will, has, has many different components. And so as the executive director and, and as a partner with our artistic director, we're thinking about the different groups of employees and the dancers, as you mentioned, are, are of course, a tremendously important part of that ecosystem. And, and they are, it's like Olympians hearing that the Olympics are canceled was when our dancers heard that we weren't going to have our traditional spring season at the Metropolitan Opera House. This is something they've worked for, if not since birth, then certainly since their earliest years mm. as, as this incredible, irreplaceable opportunity. It's the reason they've worked 10,000 hours is to have that moment of glory and flow and release and and uh, accomplishment on that grand stage. And so when we canceled that opportunity, it was crushing and we knew it would be crushing, but it wasn't just that that was crushing. It was, it was a break in the routine. And I have to tell you a little bit about what the dancer's daily life is like. I can tell you about mine also as, mm -hmm. as the executive director and the leader, but a dancer's daily routine starts at the bar. Every day of a dancer's life begins with class. Whether you're a student uh, and you're eight, nine, 10 years old, uh, or whether you're a professional dancer at the peak of your career, you start every day with plies at the bar. Well, all of a sudden, for the first time in their lives, for many of them, there was no bar. Hmm. There was no, there were, there were no colleagues standing next to you at the bar. There was no teacher in front of the room with a pianist, accompanist to play the music. How do you even begin your day without that physical ritual, which is also a meditation, which is also the way in which you improve and learn and grow. So one of the first things we had to do was provide daily class. Right. And your kitchen counter became your bar and the back of your sofa became your bar. And as quickly as possible, we mailed out uh, they're called Marley. It's a type of, of rubberized material. We sent out Marley floors uh, squares of floor that dancers could put in their living rooms. And we figured out how to teach effectively on Zoom so that they weren't just giving themselves class, but that they were together on a screen, having that instruction from one of our expert teachers or our directors of repertoire who could guide them through that daily ritual because it's as important for their, for their mental health and, uh, and their, their sense of uh, continued uh, growth as it is their physical health. Mm -hmm. So, so class was one of the first things that we started to provide. Uh, and then in addition, uh, as we have from the beginning been, been concerned about and attentive to uh, mental and emotional health, as well as, as well as the physical health and protecting the physical health of all of our employees, uh, we have been trying to provide opportunities for intellectual growth. So what speakers and experts from adjacent fields can we bring into the ABT community to answer our questions and to share their life stories? Uh, with the dancers particularly, we uh, offered them a 
uh, free course in our national training curriculum, which is uh, pedagogy for ballet teachers. So could they learn a new skill set, not only how to be a dancer, but how to be a teacher, a master teacher during this time. And, and 42 of our 86 dancers went through this certification process. Uh, we offered classes in, in different types of world dance and brought in experts who could, uh, who could teach different dance techniques from, from uh, different genres and different parts of the world. Again, something that we usually don't have time for when we're rehearsing for our Met season or when we are uh, so focused on, on our own performance schedule, kind of how can we flex new muscles during this time? And for our staff as well, because in addition to the dancers, we have a production crew, we have musicians, we have an administrative staff that has marketing personnel, fundraising personnel, finance personnel. We have our education staff and faculty. For all of these groups, how can we help them to learn and grow and improve and evolve during this time to prevent stagnation? Yeah. And if we can prevent stagnation and we can prevent loneliness by bringing people together for shared purpose and shared experiences, then I think we come out on the other side of this much, much stronger and much, much more uh, cross-trained and adaptable uh, so that we can solve the new problems that the world will throw at us so that we can navigate the new challenges because COVID certainly wasn't the first and isn't the last. This company has been around for eight decades, Laura, and it was founded in the shadow of World War II. So we've, we've navigated through challenge before. And while this may be the greatest set of concurrent challenges that, that the company's ever faced and that our country's ever faced, uh, we are a resilient bunch. And if we can avoid stagnation, uh, avoid hibernation, uh, and avoid uh, devastating loneliness, um, then we can come together and do some pretty amazing things. Yeah, that's, I mean, beautifully, beautifully said. So ABT is not unique in terms of organizations that have had to develop and really embrace a virtual presence. But for you, it was, as I understand it, brand new. You had no virtual presence, no background in digital how did you do that? <laughs> Who did you turn to? How did you, you know, <laughs> starting with the classes that you just described, but, but I'm, I'm sort of struck by, you probably didn't have staff leadership with the background in terms of how to do that. So what did you do? No, Laura, for eight decades, we've been uh, pursuing excellence in live interaction in live performance, in live education and training, that, uh, that magical energy exchange that happens when you're in the same room together in close physical proximity. That's been, uh, that, that's been what, we, what we've invested in and what we've excelled in. It's really, you're, you're, it's really been your backbone. I mean, that's been absolutely. something that you took so much pride in that notion. The, the idea to, to then move away, I can only imagine both from the standpoint of, of the capability, but also just the culture shock that that must have caused. A absolutely. And, and in the creation process, the training and the creation process, as well as the, the performance, the performance is, is at the end of a process, right? That's when you deliver and share this artistic experience with audiences. And that's what I think when most people think about the challenges to the performing arts in this time, it's, oh, you can't have public assembly and therefore you can't perform for large crowds of people. And that is true. 
but you also have a pretty hard time creating those works of art and you have a pretty hard time keeping those artists growing in their athletic and artistic abilities when you can't convene people and where you can't have close physical contact. How do you practice lifts in your own bedroom? Right. Right. How do you have a, uh, to pick a ballet that most people know, how do you have the waltz of the flowers in the nutcracker or the snow scene in the waltz of the nut of, uh, you know, in, in the nutcracker without multiple snowflakes, you, it, it's pretty tough. So, so I think that um, the, the collective and collaborative and cooperative activity required to do anything in the performing arts uh, requires some, um, some shared physical space. Mm-hmm. And so one innovation, I guess, that we, uh, that we borrowed from sports is our quarantine bubbles. And we saw what the NBA was doing and we said, you know what, we can do a version of that. And what that was, was an opportunity for athletes who participate in a team sport to to play and to compete at the highest level and not just to shoot foul shots in their driveway or to go in with their trainer and run drills, but they were able because of this protected ecosystem to do what they do at the highest level. And so what we've done now is uh, four quarantine bubbles in the fall, we'll do five quarantine bubbles in the first half of this year. And what that's meant to do is give the artists an opportunity to work together in the same space. And uh, after the first couple of weeks of ramp up and testing, they can take off those masks and exist together. Yeah, And that, that is it can't be underestimated how powerful it is not only to do plies at the bar next to your colleagues and to create new works of art with choreographers who are also in that bubble, but to have a spaghetti dinner around the table with 10 people and have a conversation with 10 people. I mean, it is the, the, the dancers who have gone into these bubbles and the choreographers who've gone into these bubbles, I think are a little apprehensive before they go in because it's, you know, you haven't been to camp in a long time and that's kind <laughs> of what it is. It's that, that retreat experience, but the, the, the tears when they leave, because it's been so rare and special and affirming in this time is uh, it's, it's irreplaceable. And what we're trying to do is what can we learn from these, these bubbles and kind of the intensity of this experience, which is creating, which has led to pretty revelatory art for ABT that is expanding our, our repertoire and that is uh, really adding to the artistic variety and the uh, artistic offerings that ABT is sharing with our audiences. How can we do that even when we have the old methods available to us again, right? There, there is something that has, that has been, um, that, that through this experimentation, we've had some discoveries that we are now really thinking actively about how can we hold on to some of that, that magic? Because the focus and the, um, the relationships forged in these bubbles are, are very different from the relationships that we have when it's porous when everyone's coming in and out of rehearsal and when they're jumping from one rehearsal room to the next rehearsal room. Several weeks with one set of colleagues and with one choreographer is leading to new types of exploration and artistic discovery. One other dimension uh, of several, I'm sure, related to your job is 
the need for making up or dealing with lost revenue, which I would imagine when the bulk of your revenues, I understand it, came from these in-person performances all over the world and these in-person venues. Talk a bit about how you're dealing with that, how you make up for that lost revenue, sort of how much of your your day-to-day role is about development and really rethinking where that where that funding source comes from at least in the short term, hopefully. Absolutely. So within the first few weeks, we knew that the bulk of our earned revenue for the year had evaporated. Uh, And how much money are we talking about? Just to give people a context. At the beginning, we knew we were losing at least $20 million. I mean, that's so ABT uh, is perhaps over-reliant on earned revenue. We we have cultivated a, a brand and a following that, uh, that translates into ticket sales mm. and touring fees. And so ABT is in demand around the world and around the country. Uh, and so, so we are presented by festivals and by universities and by city governments and by leading theaters and opera houses and amphitheaters around the world. And when we perform in our home venues in New York City, People come from every corner of the world to experience these artists and and these productions. And so we, uh, in a traditional year, have over 50%, sometimes 55, 57% of our earned revenue, of our total revenue Mm -hmm. comes in the form of earned revenue and the the lion's share of that is ticket sales. So uh, ABT's biggest season and our our, uh, largest uh, contributor to our earned revenue is our season at the Metropolitan Opera House, which is uh, traditionally in the late spring, early summer. And we had to cancel that in the spring. And so we knew that we were, and of course, tours. I think we had three or four tours that were canceled. We were supposed to go to Abu Dhabi. We were supposed to go to my home state of North Carolina. We were planning to go to Detroit and and all of that evaporated. So we knew early that we had to find other sources of fuel. I think that many other ballet companies actually rely on the nutcracker for the lion's share of their earned revenue. And so they held out hope longer Mm -hmm. that maybe by December we'll be back in a more traditional live performance. But for us, it was like the bandaid got ripped off. And so we didn't spend any time thinking about what if, and instead we spent our time and energy thinking about how do we How do we support these activities? How do we continue to pursue our mission with vigor? And uh, and so we prioritized fundraising and philanthropy and how can we deepen relationships with our existing funders, even though they won't be able to uh, join us for a a toast uh, before the performance in their box at the Metropolitan Opera House, how can we engage with them and, and share with them what the artists are doing and what ABT has has chosen to do to keep staff and artists engaged and to keep forward momentum and growth uh, as we wrap up eight decades and look at the next eight decades. And so we developed a robust set of, of digital events that were specifically designed for donors and sponsors. Uh, we looked to our artists and said to them, you know, can you help us Think about ways to uh, to share with uh, with 
even broader fan, uh, our, a broader fan base. And so some of our dancers taught classes on, on Instagram and, and Instagram live where they would uh, either sell it, you know, they would charge admission or they would encourage donations to our crisis relief fund, which supported our su supported our support for our artists and our touring staff. Um, we uh, we developed some some pretty compelling online galas. So not that they replace the the black tie, the, the kind of epic black tie events that that we all. Uh, that we're all fond of and that we look forward to, but they were, a, a, they were uh, reasons for people to celebrate and raise a glass and sit at home on the comfort of your own couch and still experience uh, some of the greatest artists living and working today. And then we, uh, and then we also looked to, uh, to new partnerships and to brands that are looking for ways to communicate in powerful visual ways and to storytell on new platforms. And what does ABT have? What are our greatest assets? Our artists and our storytelling and our visual storytelling. Ballet has a huge advantage over many other performing arts in that we, and I don't mean me, I mean our dancers, look incredible on a small screen in six seconds. They can inspire, uplift, energize. And so what brand would not want ABT's dancers to be ambassadors? What brand would not want this incredible company to help tell stories of magic, of transformation, of the vitality and dynamism of diversity because we have 86 dancers with unique stories and narratives to share. And so we've been spending a lot of, of energy, developing relationships with corporations and with brands to say where we have an area of alignment and how can we as artists and visual storytellers help you deepen your brand story and make it more uh, attractive. And in the process, we develop new audiences for ballet and new fans for ballet because when we partner with brands, we reach their their large audience bases. We reach their large customer bases. Uh, and so it's a win-win if we can get it right. And that's been very exciting for us. For example, LG, which is our global electronics partner, worked with us to release a 10-minute film of the Nutcracker, of a highlight from the Nutcracker, this gorgeous pas de deux that's part of ABT's Nutcracker between Clara and her prince when they grow up. And the choreography is exquisite. The two principal dancers who recorded it are brilliant artists. And what LG brought to the table was the ability for us to film this in 8K technology, which had never been done before for ballet, and to premiere it on a billboard in Times Square. And so not only did we reach millions of people between ABT's platforms and LG's social platforms, but there's something that is symbolic and meaningful about this 10 minute film of incredible classical choreography featuring ABT's dancers that that's what you see when you look up in Times Square. And even though Times Square is more desolate than it was before the pandemic, there are people coming through and they could use a little bit of joy and uplift and inspiration during the holiday season 
And I don't think that ABT alone ends up on a billboard in Times Square. ABT with LG can get ballet on that Times Square billboard and deliver a gift to New Yorkers and visitors during what could otherwise be a, a, a pretty lonely and um, dark holiday season. And instead we could, we could brighten it with, with art and artistry. I'm so struck as I'm sure our audience is as well by your optimism and your positivity and your just enthusiasm for embracing this tremendous pivot, which had to be incredibly difficult for you and for all of your dancers, right? No question about it. Could we talk for a minute about how you came to this role? And maybe as you look back on your story, what were the experiences that you had that maybe taught or instilled in you this ability that you have to adapt and to embrace change? So I'm the eldest of six children. And one thing that I often joke about is, so I'm the eldest of six, our artistic director, who's my partner, is the youngest of 11. Oh, wow. And so I say that what we share is comfort with chaos, <laughs> but we also come to, uh, come to any challenge with very different perspectives on problem solving. Uh, and, uh, and also uh, an eye towards consensus building, because when you are part of a, a large team from, from birth, uh, you, you can uh, navigate human dynamics uh, in ways uh, that I think just become part of your DNA. Uh, but so I grew up in North Carolina and I always, uh, I always idolized ABT dancers and ballet dancers. I danced from a very young age. And I think that that, um, that daily ritual and that daily meditation that I talked about at the bar was very much part of my experience. Um, and that, that uh, quest for excellence and, and uh, quest for perfection that you know is unreachable, but is still this worthy goal. There's something um, in the fact that I know how hard it is and how much dedication it takes to do what our artists do that makes me really appreciate them and want to fight for them. And also having uh, worked in business and I, I worked as a, as a theater producer, as, as an entrepreneurial Broadway and off-Broadway theater producer. And I helped start a 99 seat theater off, off-Broadway. And um, and then I went to business school where I worked with people who solve problems across a range of industries. There's something in having the experience of, of what it means to be an artist at the highest level, but then also uh, knowing people who are uh, succeeding in business at the highest level and interacting with them, whether they were my investors when I was producing on Broadway or our trustees now, that I find that I am constantly learning from uh, a variety of different sources and finding inspiration in nooks and crannies where perhaps perhaps others might overlook uh, those, those points of inspiration or those sparks of, hmm, how could I, how could I adapt that? My, um, my kids always make fun of me because I always have a notepad and I'm always jotting down things I hear or see. Um, I am an, an avid sports fan. So I mentioned the NBA before, but I'm always looking to coaches of teams for how they are inspiring and motivating their teams. I'm often looking to 
uh, individual athletes for their resilience and how do they, when they're battling back from an injury, find the, the strength and the fortitude to soldier on and uh, come back stronger. Uh, and so I think that, um, I think that if I'm looking for themes, I think part of it is, is, is the comfort in chaos that came from being part of a, of a large family and knowing that there's never a right answer. There's always a lot of ambiguity, but you got to get stuff done. Dinner's got to get on the table. The car has to leave for school on time, figure it out. And that plus just kind of an insatiable intellectual curiosity uh, of reading, watching, observing in non-COVID times traveling and not getting stuck in a place of myopia and tunnel vision. That every time in my life or career where I felt like, you know what, I've lived in North Carolina too long, or you know what, I've been reading the, you know, arts press before the headline news for too long, or I've been, you know, all of my friends are interested in the same set of issues. That's when I've decided I have to exert a force and insert a change in the routine. So that was after five years in the commercial theater in New York, going to business school. That was after, uh, you know, that was after growing up in North Carolina and going to school in North Carolina saying, I am going to take a leap of faith and move to New York City, even though I don't even know how I'm going to piece this together, but I think I want to be a Broadway producer, right? It's, it's, it's a uh, move. I call it leaning into fear. And uh, I find that if there's something that you're, that you're, that you're scared of, it probably means it's something you need to explore. And so when I went to business school, I hadn't taken math since high school. I was terrified. I had never considered going to business school. And it was one of the best decisions I made. I cried for the first two weeks because it was like learning a foreign language, <laughs> but it was one of the best decisions I made. And same with ABT. I got a call about this, this job. And my first thoughts were, I'm, I'm 10 years too young. I'm six or seven months too pregnant. And I'm running a small a, you know, a small team and this entity they want me to run is one of the iconic institutions of our country. They must have the wrong number, <laughs> right? But that was fear. Right. And, and I almost kept myself out of an interview for a dream job until I reminded myself, wait a minute, Kara, every time that you're really scared about something means you should probably explore it. Yeah. So, um, I love that. I hope that some of those themes are helpful. Oh my God. Chaos, <laughs> curiosity, and fear, all good <laughs> motivators. And imposter syndrome to some degree, right? You're perfectly oh, huge. confident and, ca- and capable, competent and capable of doing this job. And yet you immediately doubted yourself, right? And that fear, that imposter syndrome, all those themes that we talk about on this podcast so much of the time. Yes. I, I love that answer. That's amazing. Really amazing. Okay. Maybe let's talk about this extraordinary experience that you have been through and are still going through, lessons that you've learned, things maybe that you wish you had known before this happened. Give me some context on what you're going to take away so far. Again, recognizing we're still to some degree in this. What have you, what have you learned? What might you do differently going forward? Well, one thing is communication. And I think that I will 
forever be more <coughs> intentional, you can't possibly over communicate. I think that we took for granted in an in-person world that you could have all of these informal interactions and it would add up to collective understanding. And in this remote time, we have learned the value of consistent, clear communication. And that includes listening, by the way, as well as, as sharing as a leader. Um, but for the first five months, I think, of the pandemic, the artistic director and I sent out an email every single day. And it served as a way to, it, it was like that ritual of daily plies for, for me and for him, it was to get our heads in the game the night before to say, what do we need to accomplish tomorrow? What does everyone need to know that maybe we know, what are we grappling with that we can share while it's a work in process so that it's not waiting for some drum roll that may never come. Uh, so, and that's just written communication, but there's the um, importance of picking up the phone. There's importance of sending a handwritten note at the right time. There's the importance of the town hall or the coffee chat. Um, and, and I think that uh, offering uh, our colleagues places to be heard, places to share informally and formally, um, and, and being willing to experiment with different formats and different modes of communication and then asking for feedback. So I think that that's one thing is just being much more intentional about communications and, uh, and that feedback loop. Another thing is uh, testing quickly, failing quickly, learning quickly, and then applying those learnings. So I think that this is something that we see often in, in tech companies right? Uh, this, is, this is just what you do. You innovate, you iterate, you learn, you test. But in arts organizations, not so much, right? There, is, there are these long planning cycles and big investments and you get married to an idea early because you have to fundraise for the idea and you have to share those sets and costumes with a company from across the world. I mean, there, you just get locked in mm -hmm. to a cadence and then you have very little wiggle room. And I think that during this time, because we've had to shorten the planning cycles, uh, because we are in this world that, as you mentioned, we know so little about, uh, we, are in, <clears throat> we are in what I call the ABT test kitchen. And there is a willingness to fail. There's an encouragement to fail as long as we do after action assessment. And, and I learned all about this from a, a, a four-star general who I heard interviewed, where there is a process after each thing now that we release, after each digital program is put out there into the world and we sit down as a team and say, what went well? What didn't go so well? What are we going to make sure we do next time? And what are we going to make sure we never do again? And, uh, and I think that, so that, that kind of formalizing the process around testing, failing, learning, and, uh, and then analyzing is, is, is new and also shortening those planning cycles so that we can be more nimble. Uh, so communications, I think that that idea around innovation and uh, adaptive learning is, is new. Um, and then I think that the other thing is, is a little bit more harder to define, uh, but I think it's something around self-forgiveness Mm. as a leader and finding and relying on uh, mentors. And those mentors might be your colleagues and they might be outside the organization, but 
I think that this time has been so lonely for leaders. Uh, and so finding other, other people who can serve as sounding boards, as cheering squads as needed, um, as uh, thought partners, um, and, and I think that during this time, there's been so much interest in and openness to collaboration amongst leaders. Uh, I have been meeting once a week with the heads of major ballet companies across the country. We used to meet once a quarter. Right. Now we all look forward to our time together once a week to share common problems. I've been talking to heads of museums. I've been talking to heads of libraries, heads of theater companies, uh, we're all reaching out to one another to say, how did you do this? How did you navigate this? What's your perspective on? And then on my, on my own board of trustees, which, which individuals who are currently leading entertainment companies or who are currently leading divisions of large banks, right? What are you doing? How are you keeping your workforce inspired and engaged? How are you thinking about equity and inclusion and our response to movements for racial justice and social justice? I wanna learn best practices, not only from the arts, but from leaders in a variety of fields. So I think resisting the temptation to have tunnel vision, resisting the temptation to myopia, which is just hardwired in us that in stressful situations, we become more and more myopic and we try to just solve the problems that are right in front of us. To keep opening up the aperture, uh, you have to exert some energy to do that, but I found that it uh, provides uh, ideas, encouragement, energy, and empathy uh, when you recognize that, that your problems, struggles, challenges, may not be as dire as they seem, right? If, if I talk to the CEO of a, of a cruise line, they're having a pretty hard time too. It's not only the performing arts. If I talk to the CEO of an airline, there, there's a lot going on there. When I talk to our hospital partners, because we've been doing live concerts and, and digital programs for patients and staff, in uh, Mount Sinai Hospital in New York since the beginning. You talk to healthcare leaders right now, wow, the, the ways in which they are managing the, uh, the logistical and emotional challenges of their roles leading these institutions uh, through adversity and ambiguity. It, it helps to, to center me uh, in my own leadership of this institution that I care about deeply. Uh, but that has so much going for it. And uh, we, it gives me the fuel I need to secure the resources and fuel that the organization needs so that we can continue to be an ecosystem where artists and staff can thrive. Kara, amazing. Absolutely amazing. I have loved spending time with you and I really appreciate it. I know you have a lot on your plate. That is an understatement, um, but I'm really grateful that you shared your story with our listeners. I know they'll love it. There are so many themes that came out of this conversation, um, not the least of which this last point that you really emphasized, which is the idea of diversity of thought and opinion and how important that is to 
to have that coming from all different vantage points. Sometimes we look at the idea of diversity from a, through a very narrow lens. And the reality is you need diversity of experiences and of thought and opinion in addition to other types of diversity. And it's an incredibly powerful concept. And you really just did a beautiful job explaining that. So, well, Laura, I'll add to the, to that point, we actually added two leadership groups to ABT's ecosystem during the pandemic. And one is our global council, which now in addition to our board brings us perspectives from leaders in a variety of fields from all over the United States and around the world. So we have members of this group in Hong Kong and in Seoul and in Oman and in San Francisco and in Texas and in <laughs> right, all over the place. Yeah. Um, and they can share their experiences leading not only their own companies, but many of them sit on the boards of other arts organizations and nonprofits in their local markets, and they can share best practices with us. So the ABT Global Council has been tremendously helpful as we've navigated. And then we also formed a RISE Advisory Council. We've started something called ABT RISE, which is our reinvigorated commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion, and another group of leaders and thought leaders and practitioners and experts who we can turn to and who have said, we want to help ABT. And we believe in ABT, in the authenticity of ABT's commitment, and we can be by your side as you problem solve, and we can provide introductions and resources and networks and, again, best practices. Having those two groups, the ABT Global Council and the RISE Advisory Council in our corner, it's energizing and it's buoying. And, uh, and I, I highly recommend to, to any of your listeners that that idea of diversity of expertise, diversity of experience uh, is, is crucial as we navigate what my, what my board chair likes to call the class five rapids. He used to call them the class five rapids of 2020, but now I'm just going to call them the class five rapids of, uh, of this adventure. I love that. Kara, thank you so much. This was such a pleasure. Thank you so much, Laura. Such a pleasure getting to know you and spend this time together. You I'm very too. honored to be here. Thank you very much. Honored to have you. If you're new to She Said, She Said podcast, please be sure to check out our past episodes. And before I let you go, I also want to ask a favor. If you're enjoying She Said, She Said podcast, and I sure hope you are, I would be so grateful if you could share us with your friends. And I would also be so grateful if you would go on iTunes and give us a nice review. Just a few quick words and five stars, if you don't mind, would be awesome. Nice words and nice reviews make a big, big difference. They help us move up the charts and they help others who are looking for content like this to find it more easily. I really appreciate you being here as always. And I hope that you found some great perspective and got a positive lift for your week. I'll see you next time. Take care. <laughs>